Grab your Bibles. Let's go to Mark. Mark chapter 1. We started Mark a few weeks ago. Mark is an action-packed. Boy, he is action-packed. He wants to get right down to the, to the nitty-gritty action. Today is going to be no different. Um, Mark is in the New Testament, so it's towards the back of the Bible. I'd say 90% of the way through in my Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you should see a blue one in the pew back in front of you. We'd love for you to open that one up uh, with us. Word of God is precious to us. Um, God tells us in His Word that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If you need faith in Jesus, open your Bible. If you need to grow in your faith, as we all do, open your Bible. Uh, if you need a Bible, take that blue one home with you. Let that be our gift to you. We'd love to, uh, we'd love to be part of your life in that way and be able to give you that gift. Okay, I think I'm hearing less and less pages rattle. I think we are all there together. Okay, uh, who do you think is the most powerful person in the world? Okay, Jesus, yeah, but... That's, a good, that's the right answer. That's the right answer. Apart from Jesus, who is the most important person, most powerful person, human person in the world? Who would you say? Donald, the president. The president, right? Donald Trump, I think around the world, people think that Donald Trump is the most powerful person in the world. And that sounds really good. But if you really think about it, how much power does he really wield, does he really have? I mean, we're talking about a human person who is limited in his role. He can only be president for four years, maybe eight years. So he might be powerful, but he's only powerful for, at the most, eight years. That's not super-duper powerful when you think about it. And he is the leader of America. We love America. It's a big country, but America, he's the leader of America, but America only makes up 4% of the population of the world. So, he's powerful, but he's only leading 4% of the world. So, I mean, it's just kind of, it's not that powerful. Here's the thing. The President of the United States, whoever he or she will be, all it takes is one virus, one bacteria, one situation to take them out of the presidency. Think about that one. A microscopic organism can find its way at the right place at the right time, and they won't be president anymore. It's really not that powerful of a person. In fact, the president's authority is determined by the words of other people. The president's authority rests on the Constitution, which was written by people 200 years ago. And their power is determined by the words of the people, whoever votes for them. So the president of the United States might be the most powerful person in the world, but he's dependent on a lot of people, isn't he? I mean, really, when you get down to it, does that really sound all that impressive as maybe it did five minutes ago? So what we're going to do, what John Mark does in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, is he says, you want to see what real power looks like, I'm going to show you what real power looks like. Let's take a look at King Jesus. Mark chapter 1, big number 1, little number 21. Let's read this together. We're going to read through little number 34. 
So maybe two paragraphs. It goes like this. And when they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, entered the church, and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority. And not like the scribes. Not like the preachers. And immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he screams, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and screaming out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, his disciples. He just gathered them last week. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they took they told him about her, and he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve, serve them. And that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and they healed many, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. That is real power. That is a real king. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus is a real king. Jesus is king over the small. We see Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. We see the whole town bringing Jesus who is sick. We know that illnesses may be caused by small things, but they are huge to us, aren't they? Kind of disproportionate to their physical size. Often unseen, disease is hidden under layers of skin, muscle, tissue, organs, and they're so tiny we couldn't see them with our naked eye. And yet Jesus can see them, and Jesus can heal But we see, what we see is Jesus is king over these small things, and he, does, he heals the sick, but he doesn't heal the sick like doctors heal the sick. Doctors are dependent. Doctors go to years and years of medical school. Doctors depend on books written by other people who have read books written by other people. They use tools, and they use medicine, and they use hospitals. And those are all good things. But Jesus doesn't use those. Jesus' medicine is his word. 
Jesus' medicine is his will. He doesn't say, you're sick, I'm going to go grab the ambulance, we're going to take you to a sterile condition, and I'm going to open you up, I'm going to take a scalpel, I'm going to open you up, and I'm going to get you medicine, I'm going to read about it, I'm going to figure this out. No, Jesus heals because he says, you're healed. That's different. His will is our medicine. He wills it, and our molecules, our cells, our organs, and our bodies obey him and are healed. That's different. And we see him in Scripture healing all kinds of people. He's healing lepers. He's healing blood diseases. He's healing paralyzed bodies. He's healing blindness, and he heals the ultimate illness. He heals Death. Who does that? And he does it with a word. What kind of king is this? How does he do this? Mark wants us to know that Jesus is king over all the small things that cause big suffering. And he does this because every molecule, every cell, every tissue, every organ, every body is under his command. Every molecule knows its master's voice. R.C. Sproul says it this way, there is no maverick molecule in all the universe. That's a real king. That's the kind of king we need. Now, this brings up other questions. This brings up other questions. If Jesus is this powerful, why do we get sick? Well, sickness is a result of the fall. Illness became part of humanity's story when we introduced sin into the world. When Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, illness became part of our story. As did suffering as did pride, as did conflict, as did hate, as did murder, as did war, as did hell. So the sickness is the result of fall. It's the result of general sinfulness. So general sinfulness of humanity brings general illnesses. That means the majority of illness that we face isn't the result of any particular sin that you or I might commit. Most of the illness, illnesses are due to humanity being sinful and therefore humanity being ill. We see this particularly in John chapter 9. They bring Jesus, a man born blind, and they say, Jesus, whose sin caused this man's blindness? Was it his? Is it somehow God knew he would sin if he had sight? So, he, he, so God cursed him with blindness? Or is it his parents? Were his parents a bunch of bums? And so then he's blind. Jesus says, none of these things. 
His blindness was not caused by any particular sin. But there are particular sins that can bring particular illnesses, aren't there? We know all these. Sexually transmitted diseases are brought on by primarily sinful sexual content, contact. Particular sinfulness like alcoholism brings alcohol poisoning. A drunk driving crash is a response, is a, is a factor from a particular sin. We can go on and on. Overdosing, gluttony, pride, all these things bring particular can bring particular illnesses. My favorite example in the Bible is the Old Testament, Moses bringing people out of, out of Egypt. Moses marries a black woman, and his sister doesn't like it. And so God has a particular sin called racism, and God shows us what he thinks of racism. God comes to that woman who doesn't like her black sister-in-law, and God says, you like white skin so much, I'm going to give you white skin. And he gives her leprosy. Wow. Particular sin can cause particular illnesses. So sickness is the result of sin. But we know that God, why, why do we get sin? Why do we get sick? But God uses sickness to call us to himself. Because our real need, no matter how we feel, our real need is not physical healing. Our real need is what? Spiritual healing. And so Psalm 107 says it this way. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. Psalm 107 says it this way. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their sin suffered affliction, suffered illnesses. And they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out, get this, he sent out his word, his word, and he healed them. Yes, sickness is the result of our sin. Why does God allow sickness to come? One answer to this is that God uses our sickness to bring us to Him, to show us that, we, that something is desperately wrong. To show us that we need a healer. That's the same for, for illnesses. I need Jesus. That's what it's designed for. God allows sickness because sickness can bring us to Jesus. You know what? Guess what? This sin works the same way. Sin... And the Ten Commandments are designed not to make us act better. They are designed to show us we desperately need a Savior. That's what Paul said. And we are in desperate need of healing. And sickness finds its ultimate reason for being in revealing that God has sent a healer. And his name is Jesus. We go back again to John chapter 9 with this poor man born blind. They say, why? Whose sinfulness caused this? And he said, Nobody's sin, nobody sinned to cause his blindness. But this in particular, this man is blind so that you may see the glory of God in me. And he heals the man. 
We get sick because humanity is sinful. Sickness calls us to seek God's healing. And sickness ultimately points us to the great healer that God has sent, Jesus. And that brings us back to our favorite verse that I tell you all the time. Tattoo this to your forehead, okay? Tattoo this to your forehead. Romans 8.28, for all things work together for the good of those who love God. All things. Even your sickness. Okay. That's why we get sick. Let me comfort you with this, Christian. All believers will be healed. Are you with me? All believers will be healed. Believer, the question isn't if you will be healed. It's when will you be healed? Now, non-believer, if you're here today, you're non-believer, okay? The offer for healing is out to you as well. See, the thing about it is we will be healed through Jesus. Reject Jesus, we reject ultimate healing. So, believer, you will be healed. Sometimes we'll be healed by Jesus today. Like the people in this account. They were healed that day. That's great. Sometimes we'll be healed tomorrow or six months from now or six years from now. We will suffer for a season and then we will be healed. Often, we will be healed when we see Jesus face to face. We'll be like Paul, who declared that he's asked God to heal him of this thorn in his flesh. I believe it's a physical ailment. He's asked God to heal him of this, and God wasn't going to heal him. For whatever reason in Paul's life, that thorn in his flesh, that, that ailment was there to reveal the glory of Christ, either to Paul or to others. It was to do something to bring God glory in Paul and bring Paul good, like Romans 8.28 says. And Paul couldn't see it, but he believed it. And so when we see Jesus face to face, we will all be healed. Revelation 21.4 says this way about being with Christ after the end of the age. He says this, And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because the first things have passed away. We will all be healed. What determines when you will be healed, believer? Believer, you will be healed when God has taken your illness and squeezed out as much glory for Christ as is possible. And when he has squeezed out as much eternal joy and good for you as is possible when he has squeezed every ounce of these out of your illness, you will be healed that moment. But he loves you too much to sacrifice your eternal joy for temporal relief. Are you with me? That's hard. But the truth of the matter is, when we see what God sees, 
we will have no complaint. When you see what God sees, you will have no complaint. So, suffer well, brothers and sisters. Jesus is king over the small. And we see in this that Jesus is king over the medium. We see that Jesus is king over demons. Can you imagine sitting in that church that Sunday, that, that Saturday? Can you imagine what that was like? I mean, it, seem, it, it seems, it seems that this wasn't a man that just walks in off the street. It seems like he was probably somebody in the synagogue. He was a church member. So, sees Jesus, hears Jesus preach, and the the literal translation is he screams in terror to see the Son of God in front of him. Jesus is king over demons. Anytime we talk about these things, we talk about demons, we need to make sure we avoid two ends of the temptation spectrum. Okay? One temptation when we talk about demons, when we read them in the Bible, is to make nothing of demons. Come on. We really believe in demons. I mean, the iPhone 11 is out. Right? People who have iPhone 11, they don't believe in demons. Come on, demons. We see demons in Hollywood. We see demons on movies. Temptation is to not talk about it because it feels embarrassing. I'm sure there's somebody here today who you invited your friend and they came and you hear me talk about demons. You're like, come on, preacher. You got to get weird today. As this guy just finally came. Um, but my, my friends, we believe that demons are real because Jesus believes that demons are real. We do not, we're not, we, we do not, we are not embarrassed of who Jesus is and what he taught. So one of the temptations is to say, well, we're too advanced or too smart or too whatever to believe that demons are a real thing. Even in church, we say those things. I would suggest to you, you go ask our missionaries in third world countries if demons are real. I could go on. There's a lot to that, but we're going to move on. That's one side. We make nothing of demons. Another temptation is to make too much of demons. To see that there's a demon under every rock. There's this old movie. I don't even know what the show was. My dad, growing up, he always quoted this old show where this little kid would go, the devil made me do it. Anybody remember that? Remember that show? Is that a show or is my dad just crazy? could be both, right? It could be both. Our temptation is to see demon under every rock. I did this thing and the devil made me do it too. Our temptation is to inflate the power of demons. 
Our temptation is in church, especially when we continue on this track, our temptation may be to think that the guy who disagreed with me at business meeting is filled with the, the devil, right? He wanted to buy this weed whacker, we wanted to buy that. Well, that's just demonic. You can't buy that weed whacker. So we must avoid those two ends of the spectrum. We must avoid those temptations. We want to know what the Bible says. We want to know what Jesus says. We want to know what we need to know to be good to our people, to, to teach and preach accurately about these beings who are real. Now, we know there's much in mystery about demons. Okay? There's much that hangs in the mysterious parts between the words of the Bible. We don't get the whole full picture, but we do know some things. We know that, de that demons are created beings. We know that demons were once angels, but they rebelled against God and followed the devil. We know that demons were cast out of heaven. We know that demons are immaterial. They are spirits. They do not have physical bodies of their own. And we know, and the reason that this, this demon-possessed man screams in terror is that we know their ultimate destination. Their ultimate destination is to be thrown into the lake of fire in hell. In fact, lake of fire in hell is prepared for the devil and his demons. God doesn't want you in hell. It's prepared for them. Don't end up there. It's not for you. What's for you is to repent and believe in Jesus. So what do they do? These are demons. What do they do? Well, in Scripture, we see them harm people. They have somehow skin diseases. They give skin diseases, insanity, seizures, deafness, severe illnesses are connected to demons. We see them in 1 Corinthians 10.20. They create false religions. As they... These people worship idols, but they think they're worshiping idols. They think they're worshiping other gods, but what they're really doing is worshiping demons. They, they thwart the gospel. As Jesus talks about, we, we scoop up our seed, or seed is the word of God, and we throw it into the field. We see one of those seeds falls, and we see the devil come into the heart of someone and scoop that seed of the word of God out worth the gospel. They attack the church. 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 They encourage the teaching of false doctrines in the church. So, that's kind of what they do. And then, more clearly, demonic influences in Scripture come in this way. Spiritual conditions. Demonic influences can trouble us, can move us, can blind our mind, can fill the heart, and can tempt us to sin against our God. Hollywood likes to, when they talk about demons, they want to be big and scary and in your face and this physical domineering presence. And the Bible says that's not the scary thing about demons. The scary thing about demons is they tempt us to sin against our God. That's what should terrify us. 
And then, what we're dealing with today, we have biblical record, Jesus believing in and casting out demonic possession. That's what we're dealing with now. Demon possession is when an evil spirit indwells a person and uses their body and their mind like a tool. So, of course, what are we thinking? Can Christians be indwelled by demons? No. If you're a Christian, you're already indwelled by someone way stronger and more powerful than the, than the demon. Who are you indwelled by? The Holy Spirit. You're indwelled by God, the Holy Spirit. Nobody's kicking that guy out of his house. No one's going to mess with that indwelling. No, Christians cannot be indwelled by a, a demon, cannot be possessed by a demon. So what do we learn about demons from Mark? We learn and we please, please be on watch. We learn that demonic influence can be found in church. My commentary says it this way. There was a demonic presence in the synagogue. Being in the synagogue means being a part of the synagogue. Churches are how God is spreading his kingdom so the enemy hates true gospel-believing churches that are serious about making faithful followers of Jesus. And so, what does an en the enemy like to see in churches? Now, we're not saying every time these things happen that they are demonic or that it's somehow connected to a demon. We're saying this is what demons like to cheer about when they find it in church. At the very least, they like to cheer about these things. Disunity. They will know, Jesus says, that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. So what do demons love to see? Disunity, because the, the world says, oh, they hate each other in there, they're just like us. Demons love disunity. Demons love false teaching. Demons, the demons love a disregard for the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Demons love it when the sermon is filled with, this is how you could be a better person. This is how you could have a, a, a more fulfilling home life. Demons love that. They don't love the preaching of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Demons love pride in a church. Demons love a lack of evangelism in a church. Demon, demons love false idols in a church. Demons love the prosperity gospel in a church. We know, we see de demonic influence can be found in church. What we see in Mark is that Jesus doesn't want demons doing our job. I know you, you're the son of God, you're the holy one of God, the demon says. What does Jesus say? Shut your mouth. I don't want you telling people that. I want you telling people that. That's bad, having a demon do that's bad marketing, right? In fact, that's what Jesus is going to be accused of. He, the, the religious leaders can't say, well, he's not, he's, he's not, freeing people from demonic possession. They can't say that because he is, and so they say, well, he's doing it because he's in league with the devil. And Jesus says, I don't want you, I want the church telling people. I don't want the demons telling people. 
And what we see most importantly is that Jesus terrifies demons. Jesus is king over demons. The demon screamed. He didn't cry out with a loud, proud, courageous voice. He screamed in terror that Jesus was in his presence. Jesus terrifies demons because Jesus has come to destroy them. 1 John 3, the reason the Son appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So he says, have you come to destroy us, Holy One of God? Is now the time? Is now the time that we've dreaded since, since we rebelled? Is now the time you've come to destroy us? Why not destroy Satan and all his demons now? Why not destroy demons as soon, or throw them in the lake of fire as soon as they sinned? Why not to throw them in the lake of the fire? Jesus knows everything. Why not do that the day before they rebelled? They were created for Jesus to glorify him. Colossians 1.16 says it this way, For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible demons, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The existence of demons will ultimately, just like everything else in creation, they will ultimately only serve to glorify Christ. And as Christ is glorified, his people find joy. The existence of the enemy reveals Jesus' glory through his patience and mercy and justice and grace and holiness and righteous wrath. The existence of demons will glorify Jesus for eternity for in a thousand different ways, but here's my favorite one. The devil and his army will throw everything they have at the church, but Jesus' church will conquer with the gospel. That makes Jesus look good. The devil and the demons will do everything they can to throw a church off the course. And the church will survive. And people will be saved. And that will glorify Christ for eternity. In other words, the devil and the demons will only be here until Jesus rings out from these evil spirits all the glory to his name and the joy to us as is possible. And the moment it dries up, they'll be cast into the lake of fire. That is real power. Boy, I just, I just couldn't hardly sleep last night. And I was really stressing I mean I just it's a hard thing to preach and I just want to make sure we're prepared how do I prepare us for things like this um, what can you do practically in response to this understanding that demons are around and they hate us and they hate our gospel how can we prepare I'm going to read how we are to respond to this message this is in Ephesians 6 10 through 18 please listen please listen finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. How can you resist temptation? How can you resist demonic influence? How can you resist all the things that the devil will hurl at you? Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. The devil's going to be throwing at you all kinds of lies. You are worthless. You are, you call yourself a Christian and you act like that. Throw you barbs like, is it, is it all, is it even real? All these things, throwing all these things. What do you do? You fasten the belt of truth around you. Yes, you are worthy. Because through Christ you are a son or daughter of the Most High God. You are worthy. Yes, you are a sinner. But guess what? Christ has covered your sin. You are forgiven. Tighten that belt around your waist. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Christ's righteousness that saves us, covers us, and our righteousness that we work towards protects us from the devastation of sin. Put on that righteousness. And as for your shoes, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We stand firm on the good news that Jesus has saved a sinner like me. That's what we stand on. Having put on, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, our trust and belief and faith in our God Jesus Christ to protect us. And the shield of faith will extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And we take the helmet of salvation. And we've been saved by Jesus and we strike back against the evil one with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. If you want to resist temptation, you want to fight the evil one, you want to fight the good fight, you got to be in the Word. you got to be in the Word. Please prepare yourself. Listen, we're talking about all kinds of things that, this, that our enemy hates. I mean, look around. Look around. This, this crowd, we, we, we cannot physically fit in too many more people in here. We've got to make some changes if we want to make more faithful followers. And what does the enemy want? You laugh. You like all these people. Somebody else might throw off the groove. Making changes. Changes take money and time and effort. You don't want to do any of that. Or they changed this. This is my church. They changed this. They made the color of the carpet red. I liked it blue. We talk about that. Church is split over the color of the carpet. What is that? That's demonic influence. Please prepare yourself. 
finally. Jesus is king over small things. Jesus is king over medium things. And finally, let's end it right here. Jesus is king over the infinite. Jesus comes into this church and he teaches the word and people are astonished and the demon is terrified. Why are they astonished and why is he terrified? Because he preaches the word with authority. 2,000 years ago, you don't preach with authority. You say, this rabbi believes this about that passage, and this rabbi believes this about this passage, and that rabbi over there believes this, and I think this. And we all get together, we try to find this out, and I preach these sermons. It's a lot like what we do here, what I do here. I set out the commentaries. I'm reading this. I'm depending on the Holy Spirit. I'm depending on the church to set up guardrails so that I don't go crazy and I don't preach things that I shouldn't preach. I pray. I depend on you. I depend on the deacons. I depend on everybody. Jesus walks in, opens a book and says, this is what it says. And he does so in such a way that these people who've heard preaching their entire lives are astonished. And he does so in such a way that terrifies the demon. I don't know how exactly, but the demon's sitting there listening. And if he didn't know who Jesus was when Jesus walked in, it was the way Jesus spoke with authority of the word that sends him into a frenzy. And even if he did know who Jesus was, hearing Jesus preach in this way, terrified him. Jesus preaches the word of God like he owns it because they are his words. He's not dependent on anyone else for these words. They are his Because he gave them before the foundation of the world, he was the word of God. He uses his word to create the universe. He uses the word to call Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth, and a dead man walks. They're his words. They're his eternal word, says the Bible. They're his life-giving word, says the Bible. They're the sanctifying word. They're the faith-producing word of God. If you own the word of God, you are God. So what they heard that astonished them and what they heard that terrified the demon was the God-breathed word being proclaimed with the breath of God. They heard the God-breathed word being proclaimed by the breath of God. That's like a musician, famous musician, playing his own music. That's like an author of your favorite book reading from his favorite book. Like those things times and times a trillion. They're hearing the word from the author of the word. Jesus has come and he's not a man teaching the word. He's not an angel or a demon teaching the word. He is God the Son, King of kings, King of the word of God. Now, how are you going to respond? We see three responses in this, these two paragraphs. The demon heard the word of God, panicked, and fled. Some of us will respond to Jesus, and the, devil, the demon says, you're the holy one of God. We'll respond to Jesus, and maybe his call to holiness, or maybe his call to be a king of our lives. We'll respond to that, and we will flee. The crowd in the synagogue heard the word and were amazed. And they let Jesus walk out the door. 
some of us will hear the word of God. Say, that sounds nice. I'll deal with that tomorrow. Or I'll deal with that in a year. I'll deal with that on my deathbed. And you know what's going to happen? The devil's going to take that word, just as we saw, and he's going to scoop that out of your heart. Don't let Jesus walk out the door. Some of us will be like Peter's mother-in-law. The word sought her. You're laying in bed, sick. The word sought her. Jesus is seeking some of you today. She recognized her desperation. You think how weird that is? Your son-in-law comes in and goes, hey, I got this guy out here. We think he might be able to touch you and be healed. You what? Get out. Let me just lay in my sickness. She knows her desperation. She recognized her desperate need for a healer. And the word entered into her room, touched her, and she was healed. And she responded to the word by serving the word. Some of you today need to realize that God is pursuing you. The word is coming for you. Recognize your desperate need for a healer. Recognize your desperate need for a savior. You need to respond to the word of God by repenting from your sins and believing that he is who he says he is. How are you going to respond to God today?